and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman. I'm your host, Josh, from the global law firm Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear hot takes from me and sometimes from special guests on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing said here constitutes legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice, but we still think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back to Crypto Facto. This episode comes at a time when there was a historic meeting earlier this week on Wednesday, the 13th of September. Nearly two dozen leaders of tech companies and other groups met behind closed doors with US senators as part of a broader discussion into how Congress can regulate artificial intelligence. The panel featured multiple leaders from some of the biggest tech companies in the world and even some some executives that often find themselves on other sides of the table um, or you know potentially a ring. So the gathering was part of an effort that was led by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and a bipartisan group of senators to craft groundbreaking AI law. Now this information, by the way, is coming from an NPR article Um, Just so that in case anyone's looking for more information, it's called the who's who of the tech world meet with senators to debate plans to regulate AI. Now, one of the things that's so interesting with this focus, this continued focus on AI, as we've seen incredible developments just in the past year, including with respect to generative AI, is that AI also is one of the areas of focus in the context of the new executive order, creating a framework for outbound foreign investment. If you don't know yet what that is, well, you're about to find out because we have as a special guest today on Crypto Facto, one of my very favorite colleagues at Linklaters, John Gaffney. John and I started, I believe, on the same day at Linklaters, and he's been an incredible colleague um, on a personal level, but also truly, truly, in my view, he has unparalleled experience and expertise in his area of national security. So John, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks very much, Josh. And you're right, we did start in fact on the same day. Uh, So we are a class of two at Linklaters. Uh, And just, as you say, I've been doing national security uh, for quite a few years now, um, including 16 years dealing with the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS. Uh, where I was a member for five years. Um, I was the U.S. intelligence community representative to CFIUS. So I know you think of what I do as being kind of like spy work. And in fact, I did work with the spies of sort, in a sense. Yeah, um, is, it, is it possible for a second? Because I, I definitely want to give you, you to introduce yourself and your background. But just for those who may be listening for the first time, and I, I definitely do, I always say, your work sounds like it's either a spy novel or a psychological thriller movie that I really want to see. But what is CFIUS? I, I think maybe not everyone knows. So the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, um, one of the great DC acronyms of all time, it's often viewed as the only government body that can be treated with penicillin, is uh, a body that was created actually in, 19, in the 1970s um, under President Ford in the wake of the oil crises of the 70s and what what the government wanted to do was to look at investment into U.S. businesses to see how oil money was going from the Middle East back into the United States. Now, starting in 1988, 
the role of SIFI has changed and it started reviewing transact foreign investments, mainly in the defense supply chain. But over time, its national security remit expanded greatly to where it now covers a whole variety of different things, personal data, uh, technology transfers outside the defense realm, uh, all sorts of different types of transactions that fall within the broader scope of national security. One of the things that historically CFIUS does not do, did not do, I should say, is economic security. There was a clear distinction between national security and economic security. In fact, when the law in 1988 changed that created this foreign investment review process, uh, President Reagan had threatened to veto the bill if Congress left in language saying that CFIUS would look at at economic security issues like job preservation. The idea was not for this to be an economic protectionism body, but to be really a national security focused supply chain protection body. And that's largely where it's been. Although as we've seen um, over recent years, the lines are getting blurred increasingly between national security and economic security. So CFIUS still has officially a national security remit, but the definition of national security just keeps expanding over time. And you're the head of our national security practice, right? Um, I'm the head of our foreign investment practice. So there are other elements to national security, um, things like export controls or sanctions compliance. And there are other people who deal with those more than I do, but they all kind of tie together at some point or another. Um, so I deal mostly with CFIUS, but there are actually other foreign investment regimes in the United States uh, that are national security focused. And those include when you have a foreign acquisition of a government contractor that has a security clearance, let's say they have access to top secret or secret information as part of their work, uh, then you have to deal with Defense Department's Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which has something called FOCI mitigation, foreign ownership, mitigation of foreign ownership control or influence of the cleared contractor. For companies that deal with uh, military technologies that are under the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, which are export controls that relate to military technologies, then you have to deal with the State Department's Directorate of Defense Trade Controls. And for companies that have telecommunications licenses, particularly carriers or satellite landing or cable landing stations, undersea cable landings, then you have to get FCC, the, the Federal Communications Commission does a national interest review of license requests by foreigners or foreign ownership of US licensees and as part of its public interest analysis, if there is foreign ownership, they will generally refer the matter to something that has a really, really long name, but is colloquially called Team Telecom, which looks at the national security and law enforcement elements to make sure that there will not be issues relating to the foreign ownership of the telecom um, service provider. So there are really four different national security things that fall under it. But again, there are a couple of little things that fall outside the scope of what I do. John, how did you get into this area? Were you were you part of government at some point, or were you, you know, what what's your background that that made this your your area? So it possible for it to be your area, I should say. Yeah, I I, I sort of fell into it. It's uh, like lots of things in life. I, so I'm the prime example of how a legal career doesn't have to be linear. I was a corporate lawyer and corporate securities lawyer in Philadelphia back in the 1980s. I left doing that, got a business degree, was in the telecom sector for many, many years. When telecom sector melted down or a little over 20 years ago, um, I got a job with the FBI looking for financially motivated spies in the wake of the Robert Hansen case. 
And when I had sort of exhausted my career opportunities that were at least the ones that were interesting to me at the FBI, I got a job at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, which was the post 9-11 body created to be an umbrella body overseeing the um, U.S. intelligence community. And I was in the National Intelligence Council, which does multi-agency analyses of issues of national importance. And that was where they stuck support for CFIUS, which again had been around, had been reviewing transactions since the 1980s. But in the wake of a couple of transactions in the mid-aughts, uh, responsibility for the intelligence analysis was shifted from CIA to ODNI to make sure that there was a more broad intelligence community-based assessment, not just the CIA's internal assessment. And so I joined the group, ended up running that shop uh, shortly after I arrived. Actually, the keys were handed to me. And so for five years, I was the U.S. intelligence community representative to CFIUS. Um, after I left that, I had a consultancy relating to CFIUS for a few months. Uh, and then after sort of exhausted the commercial opportunities, I thought from that, I went back into the practice of law after 20-something years of being on the sidelines of it as a CFIUS lawyer at another large firm. I was there for five years, and then the opportunity came to join Linklaters and start up the foreign investment practice in the U.S. here, because this has clearly become a, a bigger deal and part of the offering that we need to provide to clients to provide the type of transactional support we like to provide. And so for the past four plus years, I've been getting us up and running. And now we are a pretty well-regarded practice, um, having started pretty much from scratch. I mean, I would say that's an understatement. Um, I also am really impressed and someday would love to pick your brain, although I guess it's sounding like if it was all dealing with foreign intelligence, you probably can't tell me much. <laughs> it's probably all secret. Um, but I, I'd love to. Wow. Yeah. So as everyone can hear, it really is like literally a, a spy novel that John has dealt with. So I guess just coming back to AI for a moment, um, and I, I apologize for, I know you had started off and you were going to address this and then I took you on a, a kind of a sidebar going into what CFIUS is, um, but with respect to, to AI and the outbound foreign investment executive order, do you wanna talk about that? Sure, this is something that has been in the works basically for the past year and a half and change. And there was congressional movement at the beginning of 2022 to try to create something that people were talking about as being sort of a reverse CFIUS. The idea was to have the US government review individual outbound investments in Chinese technology companies. And that was gonna cover a variety of transactions in a variety of technology sectors. And over time that got dialed back. So Congress, for example, in the Senate this year um, has passed on the Senate side of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal 2024, the Senate passed a bill that has that looks that requires notification of transactions of outbound transactions in certain sectors and shortly after that was passed um, the biden administration um, issued an executive order that creates a framework under which uh, a, there will be notifications of some transactions but some transactions are going to be blocked outright and at least initially the focus of this framework is going to be on three technology sectors artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and high-level semiconductors. And these, and, and 
right now the rules are being written. So a lot of the details for how this is going to work are not yet set. Um, there was an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that was issued simultaneously with the executive order in which the Treasury Department, which is going to have responsibility for writing the implementing regulations and for running this regime, is has asked for input, for public input on 83 different questions that help define the scope of the regime, whether it's the technology that will be involved, the parties that will be subject to it, which transactions will be involved, lot, whether this is applicable to U.S persons making outbound investments. So what's the definition of a U.S. person and how does that apply, let's say, to U.S. expatriates working in foreign companies? And so there are lots of different issues being addressed right now. And I would just say um, for folks who want to know more, there's information on the Treasury Department website and people will have until September 28th to comment on the proposed rulemaking. And this is really the best time to provide comments because once draft rules have been circulated, there's sort of a bureaucratic inertia, and it's likely that any further comments on the draft rules will really only nibble at the edges on maybe technical issues um, as opposed to really the scope of the program as a whole. So if you have concerns with the scope of the program, this is the time to speak up. So a couple of questions, John. One is, and when you say reverse CFIUS, um, for those listening who haven't, if you haven't been following along, CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And what John's talking about now is the outbound foreign investments from the U.S. So that's what is meant by reverse CFIUS. Uh, it took me a second <laughs> to, yes. to make that connection. So I'm just, just mentioning that. I guess, John, first, is this controversial, this, this executive order? How, how has it been received so far? It's really received it's been a mixed reception since the concept was raised a couple of years ago uh, there are certainly people in their u.s companies and corporate investors that invest heavily overseas that might get caught up in this there are certainly venture capital funds and private equity funds that could very well get caught up in this the so American businesses could get caught up in this. And there's a concern that if they can't make these investments, they certainly won't be competitive in China the same way, but they may not be competitive in the rest of the world to the extent that they are relying on, let's say, manufacturing capabilities in China that may be cheaper or somehow more efficient than perhaps in, in other countries. So there are certainly U.S. companies that are concerned with this. China is certainly concerned with this because they are looking for the, not just the cash that investors from the U.S. provide, but the information supporting that. So if you're a venture capital fund investing in an emerging technology in these sectors in China, you're not just going to provide money, you're probably going to provide contacts, technical expertise, other things that really can help move the business up the learning curve in China. And under this regime, that's likely to happen less frequently. So there has been concern in China. There's been concern there. And then there's concern in other places because the way the rule could end up playing out based on information in the ANPRM, the, the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, even European or, or other Asian companies could get caught up in this because a business that is in a third country or in the U.S. for that matter, that has, let's say, 50% of its operating costs or its capital costs tied up in China could be viewed as a Chinese business engaged in these activities if they're in those sectors. And so investments in those companies could be within the scope of this. We're all waiting to see how the rules play out. 
But there are a lot of people nervous on both sides of the Atlantic and Pacific about the possible scope of this. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm just wondering um, is as a practical matter for um, for those who may be, you know, making acquisitions or making investments, um, whether they're PE sponsors or or LPs, are there specific are there specific, you know, based on the on the executive order and the uh, notice of proposed advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, are there are there practical concerns that people have? I mean, some of this, it sounds like you're touching upon about just trying to figure out what's, which targets are in scope, but are there, could this have real material effects um, that go beyond what people may be anticipating? Absolutely. It's, it's really, you know, this is a, one of the classic cases where the devil will be in the details, but we don't know how expansive this will be. And this, we know that Congress wanted this to originally be far more expansive. Um, and there have been complaints about Congress already about the scope of the executive order and how it is limited to the three sectors or limited to just notifications and some blocks as opposed to some full-blown reviews of some other transactions, the reverse CFIUS method. Um, and then there are folks on the industry side and on the investment side that are concerned that this is going to hamstring them and possibly make them less competitive or make the U.S. less competitive. With, let's say we can't make an investment in China, but a European company can, are we going to lose competitiveness against them? I should tell you, however, that the European government is actually, the European Commission is already starting to look at its own outbound foreign investment concerns, uh, um, rules, as is the UK government. So it's not just the US that's thinking about this. We're just sort of in the lead right now on this issue. And if multiple entities implement these rules, multiple countries implement these rules, then the playing field gets level. So the competitiveness issue is less of a concern. So then the question becomes whether this is going to allow investors and corporates in the United States to achieve their strategic objectives. And for people who are wondering about this, I mean, what about those, those uh, transactions that may be in process now where the new rules aren't out, but, um, but it's after the executive order. Do they have to worry about things, or is this something where until there are rules, you know, it let's just push everything through? Could be a view. Is that the wrong view to take? There is no restriction on investments that are being made today, and they won't be made, and there won't be restrictions until the executive order rules take effect, which won't be for several months because of the multi-agency rulemaking process. It's really easy for one agency, if it were just Treasury, to write rules. It's really hard if they have to coordinate those rules with multiple agencies, notably the Department of Commerce in this case, um, and to get those out. So we think it's going to be several months before the actual framework takes effect. That said, the Treasury Department, in its advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, put people on notice that any transactions that take place starting from the date of the executive order, which was August 9th, until the actual regulations take effect, is going to be expected to provide information about those transactions because uh, Treasury really wants to understand which transactions slipped in under the wire to see if there were things that maybe they missed in the rulemaking. And those could be the basis for future changes to the regulations, which are fully expected. Thanks, John. And you know the three technologies that you mentioned AI and quantum computing, and I believe that you said something about processors as well. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how those are are defined? Because I know even just with AI, we've seen tremendous advances just in the past, you know, several months. So is it is it something where people may want to to more closely look at the definitions? Are these broad? Are these narrow? Yeah, these are some of the key issues that Treasury is facing as it writes the rules. In the context of CFIUS, there's a concept of um, critical technology. And originally, Congress wanted CFIUS itself to define which technologies are critical. But they said, look, we are not really equipped to do this. Meanwhile, we have multiple export control regimes. We have the ITAR, the International Traffic and Arms Regulation for Military Technologies. We have the export administration regulations that cover dual use military civilian technologies. We have various technologies that the Department of Energy handles relating to nuclear materials and equipment. Uh, there are other technologies, uh, other export controls related to things like um, agents and toxins that could be used in biochemical warfare. So there are a variety of these different export control regimes. And what they did at CFIUS when they were told to define critical technologies is that we would rather just refer to the export control regimes and use that as our definition of the covered technology. That really doesn't work in this case, because as you said, there are a lot of emerging technologies coming out of this. And so export controls may not have been written. In fact, in some cases, a lot of the new developments may be exempt from the export controls. And as I said, I'm not really an expert in export controls, but I do know that there is something called the fundamental research exception, which is basic or applied research in certain areas of science or engineering, if they are publishable, they're exempt from US export controls. So basic technology is often exempt where it's the engineered applications that ultimately become subject to export controls. So if the concern is that US investors would be investing in Chinese companies that are doing basic research in these three sectors, the export controls may not cover it. And so treasury, if they really do wanna close that gap, going to have to actually define its own technology. And that's where they're going to bring in the Department of Commerce in particular to help provide the technical expertise to do that. So interesting. You know, it's it's funny, like, perhaps because it's not my, my area of expertise, but often in my head when I hear export controls and then when I hear you say outbound foreign investment, I think of those things as being related or very similar. But I'm sure there are there are differences that are 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 vast <laughs> that you're aware of. How would you, uh, for those who are listening, what is really the difference between export controls? Does that deal more with goods? Um, whereas outbound foreign investment might be financial investment? Is is there, am I barking up the no, wrong tree, so to speak? Or no, is no, this... You're exactly right. It's, it's really what the executive order's new framework is intended to do is to stop the flow of money. And actually what they're describing informally as smart money, that's money that comes with technical expertise to Chinese companies in these three sectors. And export controls are really designed to stop the actual flow of technology. And that includes both good, that can include goods, services, or the backing technology that enables you to make those goods or provide those services. And so those are subject to, again, the host of export controls I described earlier. And for those, you tip, in some cases, depending on where the technology is going or what use it has, it may not require a license. But in some cases, an export license may be required. And that's particularly true for a lot of technologies going to China. 
Um, some countries, Canada, almost no export controls apply for technologies going there. But for China, lots of export controls apply. So there's already an export control regime to stop the flow of the actual technology to, that's within the scope of the export controls. But there isn't anything stopping the money or as these non-export controlled know-how type things going to China. Interesting. Very interesting. So I, I think you may have mentioned, although I may be mistaken, but did you mention that there was a CFIUS conference, I think, earlier this week? Um, that's right. So on Thursday, the 14th, Treasure, um, the Treasury Department, as the chair of CFIUS, hosted its second annual CFIUS conference. And one of the takeaways from this, one of the important takeaways from this is that Paul Rosen, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury responsible for CFIUS, said that he expects that in the coming year, we will see some new regulations governing CFIUS. And those cover a variety of things. And it really, the, or he didn't go into specifics as to what the rules would cover, but they he described sort of broad categories of things. But I would speculate that some of the things that we might see will relate to things like what we're seeing with the executive order, where critical technologies defined by export controls may not be specific enough to cover all the things with which CFIUS may be concerned. So maybe after the rules are written for the outbound investment regime and defines other specific technologies that are outside the scope of export controls, maybe some of those technologies will slip their way into CFIUS's critical technology definition. The other, um, uh, there's another possibility, which is that CFIUS reviews foreign investments in U.S. businesses. And typically that's going to be an equity investment or a debt investment with lots of covenants or establishment of a joint venture in cooperation with a U.S. business where the U.S. business. Uh, and those are specific types of corporate transactions, but they don't include the license, a licensing agreement. So if I am a company outside the United States and I pay a licensing fee to a U.S. company to license their technology, that is outside the scope of CFIUS right now. And that's different from the way things work elsewhere. In the United Kingdom, which has had its National Security Investment Act up in running now for about a year and a half, they've blocked transactions that were licensing deals. Uh, one in particular involved uh, Chinese licensing uh, from the University of Manchester of, of certain machine vision technologies. The German government is similarly contemplating expanding its foreign investment regime to include licensing transactions. So I sort of wonder with those other things going on, whether the new rulemaking at CFIUS might also affect tech transfers under just licensing agreements without an overarching corporate transaction taking place. Wow. That, I mean, that would be, that sounds like it would be a huge expansion. Yeah, that would be, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard read. First of all, they need to check the law, the, the authority given by Congress um, under the Defense Production Act to see if that actually is within the scope of the law. And then, of course, they will have to decide whether to do that. And then just as with the outbound foreign investment regime, we should expect a lot of pushback from industry on this because it, again, will affect their ability to conduct business the way they're used to doing it now. That makes sense. And so... Just so I understand a little bit better, going back to the, the three areas, right, the three technologies and AI, for example, just staying with that for a moment, mm -hmm. thinking about how it 
how did how under the um, proposed the notice of proposed rulemaking, how does one identify whether whether the investment that's being whether the outbound foreign investment is being made in AI? What if it's to a company that, among other things, develops AI? Is that would that fall within the scope, or does it have to be more narrowly tailored that this is actually the use of these of these proceeds or of these funds is going to AI development? That's another great question. The executive order basically speaks in very broad terms about companies. I think the word is engaged in these engaged in these sectors or involved in these sectors. It doesn't have very specific verbs describing the activities. When Cepheus is talking about a foreign investment in a critical technology business, it talks about, it, it lists about eight different verbs that range from developing, designing, producing, manufacturing, testing, and so forth. So it gives you a lot of very specific activities that can trigger um, CFIUS jurisdiction and in some cases mandatory CFIUS filing. I would expect to see the, the rulemaking provide that level of clarity, though we don't know what it's gonna be yet. So we would expect specific activities to be the triggers. And then I would also expect that there would be sort of an indirect element to it. So it may not, it may be that it could be somebody where it's not just the company itself that's conducting it, but maybe affiliates of the company that is conducting these activities. That way you don't have a situation where let's say somebody carves out their R&D into AI business into a tiny little shell subsidiary, but then they're still doing lots of other related things at a parent company where you can invest in the parent, but not the subsidiary if you define it too narrowly. So I think it's going to be the company that's actually engaging in the specific listed activity. But mm -hmm. I also think it's going to be affiliates of those companies, even if they're not directly engaged in that. And that could have really broad implications for multinational companies that have parts in China that are doing these things. Interesting. And so I know you mentioned as well that, you know, there is that these rules are not retroactive, although they're that these proposed rules are not retroactive, although certainly Treasury has put people on notice, as you've mentioned, that they could be questioned about transactions that took place after the the date of the um, executive order. I guess what I'm wondering is, say I am a, a PE sponsor, right? And I have an investment. And John, you have a, a company outside of the US. Um, and you are one of my portfolio companies, right? Um, do I, as the PE sponsor, or or imagine um, you know there's another person who is you know an, a limited partner um, in in the you know in this investment? Do I do any of these people need to be reassessing whether their current portfolio companies begin or currently are or continue to engage in these? technologies or it, would this be something where there needed to be some other kind of trigger like another round of equity investments um, or you know some sort of provision of additional funds via like a debt facility or something like that is there does there have to be a trigger or could it just be that there are existing portfolio companies that begin to expand into this um, these other technological realms so I think it's going to be really prudent for funds to look at their portfolio companies to see if they fit in. And it 
really to it's not so much because of their current positions in those companies, which again aren't really going to be subject to the rules, but will may but depending on when the positions were taken, may still be subject to treasury questions if they if the investments were made after August 9th. But the issue is going to be later if, as you described, there are additional funding rounds and whether investors in those later rounds are going to be subject to these rules. The other thing is whether the at the time of exit from the investment, who you can sell it to. Ooh, it, or, you know, if, if you're selling to a U.S. investor or somebody that qualifies as a U.S. investor indirectly, depending on how the rules shake out, then you may have a narrower range of potential buyers at the exit stage. So I think that it's going to be prudent for people to understand the business. Um, even now, before they get more money into it and before they exit the investment. I think there's going to be a challenge with that, though. Uh, and that is that we're talking about. It's one thing if you're a multinational that is, say, developing one of these technologies in one country and you're doing the manufacturing of it, say, in China. And but if you're if the entire business is located in China, diligence is going to be challenging. China enacted recently, it took effect, I believe, July 1st, an anti, a new anti-espionage law, which prohibits transfers of information of national security or national interest, which is a really two very broad categories in the way China works, to foreign parties. And not just foreign governments, which normally carry out espionage, but just non-Chinese entities. And that can include companies or the law firms advising companies or diligence firms that advise companies. And so getting the information out of China on these sensitive technologies to see, or to see if these companies are engaged in these sensitive technologies is going to be really challenging, but it's going to be really essential. To comply with the U.S. law, you're going to need to know, but to comply with Chinese law, you may be prohibited from knowing. So it could be a real challenge for people. And I think we'll see how this plays out over time. Uh, we know that China has said that they're going to ease the transfer of information under the anti-espionage law for some sectors. But we would think that China views these technology areas as being just as sensitive for them as the U.S. views it for itself. And so we can't imagine that somehow these are going to be green listed so that they can be so the information can readily go outside China. So, John, you know, I keep mentioning P.E., private equity. Right. But what really is I'm wondering about is actually VC right? venture capital, just because, you know, with with so much VC investment in in crypto, which I talk about a lot and now seeing a lot of it move into artificial intelligence. You know, is this something that the VCs need to worry about um, or is this really a P issue in your mind? I, I think, in fact, it is less of a P issue and more of a VC issue. Um, the talked before about sort of the smart money going over and that's often at the venture capital stage not so much the pe stage where people are looking for more established companies and in fact the center for security and emerging technology which is a georgetown-based think tank um did a report back in 2022 on investments in chinese ai companies and they were covering the timeline from 2015 to 2021 and of course, as you'd expect, Chinese investors were providing the bulk of investments in the Chinese AI companies, but the second biggest source of funds was, in fact, the United States. But among the United States transactions and investments, really, I think there were maybe 10 
PE transactions during that five-year time frame or six-year time frame, where there were many, many more venture capital investments. And many of those were by big corporate venture capital funds, the big tech firms that you would normally think of. And so those are the folks that are probably most likely to be concerned, I think, with this as it relates certainly to AI. It may be a little different for semiconductor companies. It may be a little bit different for, uh, actually, I would expect kind of the same thing for quantum computing. Semiconductor is probably more of an established sector. So I think that PE may be more involved there. But I think that it's really more of a VC issue when you're speaking about AI and quantum because they are such emerging technology areas. So interesting. I guess my last question on that is, um, since we're talking now about VC for a moment, is there an investment threshold that this kicks in after, or is this really from dollar one? It's not clear yet. It's This is where they could set a threshold. Of, it's certainly not in the executive order. They, the President Biden left a lot of discretion to Treasury to basically draw up the rules as they saw fit in concert with the other agencies that are participating in the process. Um, so it's not really clear. I would think that there's going to be some sort of threshold, but in the CFIUS world, there is no dollar threshold. So it may not, there may not be one. You would think that they're not going to want to look at every little thing that's out there. There, I mean, there are various exceptions that they are talking about. Uh, one of which I think is likely to not go through untouched, which is in uh, investments in listed companies. Um, the U.S. government has a separate rule against foreign investments in listed companies that are Chinese military industrial complex companies. And I would think that some of those overlap with companies engaged in these three sectors. And so I'd be surprised if somehow we had one rule that says you can't invest in these companies, and yet somehow this rule would let you do that. So I would think that any exception for listed investment is going to be really, really narrow. So John, you know, I keep mentioning PE, private equity, right? But what really is I'm wondering about is actually VC, right? venture capital, just because you know, with, with so much VC investment in, in crypto, which I talk about a lot, and now seeing a lot of it move into artificial intelligence, you know, is this something that the VCs need to worry about? Um, or is this really a PE issue in your mind? I, I think, in fact, it is less of a PE issue and more of a VC issue. Um, the talked before about sort of the smart money going over, and that's often at the venture capital stage, not so much the PE stage where people are looking for more established companies. And in fact, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, which is a Georgetown-based think tank, um, did a report back in 2022 on investments in Chinese AI companies. And they were covering the timeline from 2015 to 2021. And of course, as you'd expect, Chinese investors were providing the bulk of investments in the Chinese AI companies. But the second biggest source of funds was, in fact, the United States. But among the United States transactions and investments, Really, I think there were maybe 10 PE transactions during that five-year time frame or six-year time frame, where there were many, many more venture capital investments. And many of those were by big corporate venture capital funds, the big tech firms that you would normally think of. And so those are the folks that are probably most likely to be concerned, I think, with this as it relates certainly to AI. It may be a little different for semiconductor companies. It may be a little bit different for... Uh, actually, I would expect kind of the same thing for quantum computing. Semiconductor is probably more of an established sector. So I think that PE may be more involved there. 
But I think that it's really more of a VC issue when you're speaking about AI and quantum because they are such emerging technology areas. So interesting. I guess my last question on that is, um, since we're talking now about VC for a moment, is there an investment threshold that this kicks in after, or is this really from dollar one? It's not clear yet. It's This is where they could set a threshold. Of, it's certainly not in the executive order. They, the President Biden left a lot of discretion to Treasury to basically draw up the rules as they saw fit in concert with the other agencies that are participating in the process. Um, so it's not really clear. I would think that there's going to be some sort of threshold, but in the CFIUS world, there is no dollar threshold. So it may not, there may not be one. You would think that they're not going to want to look at every little thing that's out there. There, I mean, there are various exceptions that they are talking about. Uh, one of which I think is likely to not go through untouched, which is in uh, investments in listed companies. Um, the U.S. government has a separate rule against foreign investment in listed companies that are Chinese military industrial complex companies. And I would think that some of those overlap with companies engaged in these three sectors. And so I'd be surprised if somehow we had one rule that says you can't invest in these companies, and yet somehow this rule would let you do that. So I would think that any exception for listed investment is going to be really, really narrow. Okay, that, that makes sense. Wow. So that's a lot to think about. And for the VCs, or others interested in investing in early stage companies. This is something definitely, I, I would suggest you look into this, especially because there is still a remaining comment period um, for these rules. Um, that I could keep on asking this forever. Um, but I guess another question, and then maybe after this, <laughs> I'll let you get some rest since you've been so kind in answering all my questions. Um, I guess one of the one of the questions I have, and you may have answered this already, but I'm as I'm just working this through in my mind. So a lot of times we see um, investment vehicles that may be located outside of the U.S., but where there are are folks in the U.S. who are having some kind of you know control, um, you know whether it's a, a general partner or or someone like that, um, or you know companies that are located outside of the U.S., but who may have equity investors or, or someone like that who is located in the U.S., would this reach those as well? Potentially. Um, certainly the first example. I think that if you have, let's say, a fund sponsor that's based in the U.S. and the investments are being directed by a U.S. party, it really doesn't matter if the money is being channeled through an offshore investment vehicle. I think that that's almost certainly going to be within scope. The, maybe the harder question is whether, and and U.S. person is defined for purposes of the executive orders, anyone in the United States. Um, so that could be the U.S. subsidiary of a foreign company. So that scenario is probably pretty clear cut. Where it gets a little grayer or a lot grayer is, let's say you have a U.S. expat who is working for a non-U.S. company in a non-U.S. office. And this is true at various you know, foreign corporations or foreign sovereign wealth funds or foreign you know, investment funds, but they're somehow participating in the investment decision-making process for those non-U.S. entities. If a U.S. citizen is sitting in that role, even though it's outside the U.S. and even though the money never touches the United States, but still goes to China in one of these sectors, the question is going to be, at what point is 
Treasury going to draw the line on whether those transactions get swept up in this or not? And that's why this has really become a matter of global concern, not just one of U.S. and Chinese concern. Yeah, it sounds like, as you noted earlier, people really should submit comments if they haven't already. Um, if upon reading this or hearing this, they have questions or are concerned because um, I mean, these are these are very big things. And certainly just with respect to AI, I mean, it's been predicted you know, that that AI is going to be a hot, hot area. I mean, we just had um, we just there are multiple things where that's been identified as like a hot spot for activity um, and for investment activity is with respect to AI. And certainly we've been hearing all along about quantum computing coming down the line, um, potentially disrupting lots of other emerging technologies. So I, I think, you know, for those who are listening, it sounds like if you are contemplating um, investing in AI, this is something that you really need to um, be careful about and look into. And John, I know you have, um, you recently did a an article, wrote an article um, focused on some of these topics. Can, can you let our listeners know where they can find that? Sure. There are actually a couple of different things. So we did an article for PE Hub that came out a couple of weeks ago. And then we did an article for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence, which came out a couple of weeks before that. So if you check those two sources, you'll find things. There's an, also, uh, we do regular blog posts on U.S. and non-U.S. foreign investment issues. And then it, we can also find um, our latest things on the outbound foreign investment regime and on Scythius and other U.S.-focused foreign investment issues at linklaters.com slash Scythius, D-F-I-U-S. Thanks, John. And I have to say, it's been a really true pleasure having you on. Um, I can't wait to catch up with you outside the podcast and ask you more questions, but I really appreciate it. And I know um, everyone listening appreciates it too. So well, thank thanks, you. Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And there you have it, our hot takes for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Josh from Linklaters. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman.